Okay, well, let's get started then. Thank you for attending today's seminar, which will be recorded with an audio version available later, so if you miss any points along the way. And due to the short hour that we have at our disposal, as well as having an excellent panel of experts, we've decided to have them allow them some short interventions, and then we'll have a lengthier discussion amongst, uh, amongst them. After the panel, the audience is, of course, welcome to... Uh, to um, address the experts in person that are here and ask them any questions that you, you may have. And I'm going to introduce them shortly, but first I'd like to say a few words about the critical moment of the war that we're presently facing. In a little over two months, we'll enter the third year of Russia's war on Ukraine, a war that has resulted in great human tragedy with half a million troop deaths and injuries, and it's challenged the perceptions of Europe's security. For Ukraine's allies, the consequences of the war are political, military, and economic insecurity, but also there's been a surprising collaboration amongst European uh, allies for a greater cause. This week is particularly uh, an important week, as the EU summit on December 14th and 15th will discuss the opening of formal accession talks with Ukraine, as well as a 50 billion euro uh, package of financial assistance. Ukraine's foreign minister, Kuleba, has, in his words, spoken about the, quote, devastating consequences to Ukrainian morale if the European Council fails to honor its commitments to start negotiations. Meanwhile, President Zelensky is himself in the U.S. this week trying to urge Congress to pass a funding bill critical to continued financial support for Ukraine's war effort. In the shadows, we see a lurking uh, fear of war fatigue determining the contours of any diplomatic process with different perspectives on how to approach an end to the war. Would a suspension of hostilities now lead to a durable peace and long-term security for Ukraine? What kind of guarantees would not need to be in place? Or could this desperate wish to end the conflict with its human as well as, as its political and economic costs actually be more costly in the long run by accepting Russian aggression? These are some of the questions our panel will grapple with for the next hour as we ask, is there an end to the war in Ukraine? On our panel today, we are fortunate enough to have joining us online Professor Tetiana Kislova. She is a professor at the University of Kiev and a senior fellow at Swiss Peace. She will present the Ukrainian view from a multi-track perspective, including civil society as well as government perspectives. She'll be followed by Pavel Bayev, a research professor at PRIO, and he'll present the Russian view, reflecting on how Russia posi positions itself toward the conflict presently. And our final panelist is uh, Professor Laurie Nathan. He's a professor of practice of mediation at the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. And he will focus in his intervention on the conditions for a peace process. Finally, at the end of our panel discussion, we'll be provided with some concluding remarks by Christian Berg-Harpviken, who is a research professor at PRIO and a leader of the project Russian Approaches to Peacebuilding, which this forms a part of. Um, my name is Pinar Tank. I'm also on this same project, and I'm a senior researcher here at PRIO. So without further ado, I'd like to give the floor to Tatiana Kislova. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. You hear me well? Yes. 
Yeah, uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And my task now is to present visions of peace uh, which come from Ukrainian people, Ukrainian civil society, and uh, Ukrainian government and uh, regions of peace, which are still valid uh, for now and for the future. And uh, I would like to suggest that these visions of peace uh, for Ukraine and from Ukrainians consist of three important parts. Number one is uh, territorial integrity of our country. Number two, security. And number three, justice. Uh, I will speak about uh, each of these three parts separately. Um, but if we are able to, uh, to achieve uh, progress in each of these parts, this would be, in essence, a Ukrainian victory. Because the word victory is, is very important for Ukrainians. It's peace which would be lasting and just and will secure our territorial integrity and independence. Um, before I go to this, uh, just a few things. Um, number one, uh, what Ukrainians think they already achieved is the, the importance of Ukrainian agency at all levels uh, of uh, international politics. This doesn't mean the evasion of responsibility, how it's sometimes understood when the West says, oh, it's all up to Ukrainians to decide, we do not mess up. This is not about these type of, uh, types of, you know, uh, playing with responsibility. For Ukrainians, a Ukrainian agency is about inclusion of Ukraine in uh, important conversations about renegotiation of uh, the world order, because the problem is, is truly universal. Um, uh, the second uh, assumption uh, which underlies my talk uh, is that the visions of peace that I present today are based on my research of um, uh, people's understanding of peace, civil society understanding of peace and government understanding of peace. Without uh, many details, I would like to say that in, in the main points, these visions converge. This never happened to Ukrainians before and will probably never happen again when the government and the people uh, uh, are united. Uh, but uh, that, that is true when, again, people say that, no, no, this, this unity is just a rally around the flag. I would like to point out to two important distinctions uh, of, of this unity. And uh, Ukrainian unity uh, with respect to external actors at uh, international level and level of bilateral relations with Russia. Here, I think uh, unity is unquestionable. Um, inside the country, there are, of course, now uh, already very visible uh, differences in terms of strategies, how to attain the goals, but also in terms of um, social cohesion and many societal divides uh, that we as, as conflict resolution uh, researchers now uh, identify. But today, I think we, we, we all wanted to speak about the international level, and that's, that's where I go. 
So uh, about these three parts of uh, Ukrainian formula of peace, uh, the first one of them, and sometimes um, also presented as the only one, but this is not true, uh, is about territorial integrity of the country. Uh, now uh, we we have a lot of opinion polls, and every month there is a new opinion poll. Uh, by now we know for sure that at least 85% of Ukrainians um, uh, are against any territorial compromises, even though uh, they know the war will take longer and they know the casualties uh, will grow. Uh, that means uh, there is very high societal consensus on the uh, territories, on the need to return uh, the land uh, 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 to the 1991 borders, including Crimea. Uh, but let's put now uh, for a while uh, this point aside and think what else is important? And I think in terms of societal dynamic, what was not um, clear in the first year of the war is that Ukrainians now realize that this is not enough. Even coming back to, uh, to the borders of 1991 will not help uh, because there is something else. And something else is, of course, security and uh, guarantees uh, of security. And in this particular question, uh, there is, um, there's, I think, difference how Ukrainians um, see their security and what type of guarantees they want and uh, the way how the, the West um, uh, sees such uh, security guarantees. For Ukrainians, uh, and, and perhaps perhaps for everyone, the best security guarantee would be uh, to eliminate the threat altogether. That means to eliminate uh, imperial uh, Russia as, as imperial totalitarian regime altogether, yeah? Uh, that it doesn't exist at all. And for Ukrainians, they take it even further uh, and this is idea which is absolutely not acceptable to the West. Uh, the best for Ukrainians would be when Russia disintegrates into smaller states. The, this is absolutely fantastic, perhaps, uh, scenario, but uh, in terms of security guarantees, if uh, Russia disintegrates into smaller states, which then have more chances to become uh, more democratic uh, and um, Russia will have less uh, military capacities, that, that would eliminate this, uh, the threat. The second type of guarantees uh, we, we are thinking about is, of course, uh, arming Ukraine. Uh, and arming Ukraine uh, works in any, in any case. And the other type of guarantees is um, guarantees from, from the Western partners either in the, uh, uh, in the NATO membership in Article 5 or uh, similar bi bilateral guarantees from the US and uh, other countries. And the, the idea uh, of Ukrainians is all these three types of guarantees can actually be tried at least simultaneously. They're not exclusive 
uh, of the others. And uh, finally, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, last point, peace and justice for Ukrainian uh, peace only can be just peace. Uh, that means accountability for all war crimes and uh, also for crime of aggression as a separate type of crime. No compromises uh, can be done on that. And uh, now the question is, is always how to achieve this. And there is a strategy at the moment what Ukrainian government tries to do specifically with the 10 points peace plan and with other international initiatives is actually to separate issues of justice from issues of negotiations. Um, if you separate justice and security and uh, achieve those independently of Russia, then in understanding uh, of Ukrainians, then you can talk to Russia, maybe. Yeah. Also, there is a law in Ukraine that, that prohibits Ukrainians to, to negotiate with Putin, but we know that procedurally it, it's, it can be done, it can be played around, but only if security and justice are met. So I'm, I'm finished at this point. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I would now like to move on to uh, Professor Bayep, who will give us the Russian uh, vision. Thank you, Pinar. Certainly my Russian vision <laughs> is not particularly insightful. I am based in Oslo for 30 years. What can I tell you about this war, which you don't know? I can give you one bit of data. 657. It will change tomorrow. It's the number of days they will last. It is a long war. And it is now a long war of attrition, which means that the strategies are different than they were in the first year and in the first half of this year, uh, both more difficult and, and in some ways easier. There is no more kind of urgency to that war. Uh, we have time to debate, to discuss. Uh, the war is now enmeshed in other political agendas. And we see that in Washington, D.C., and we see that in Brussels where a big package of aids uh, are discussed and debated. At the same time, this long war, which, which isn't a stalemate, it's a very high-intensity stalemate. And we see that the uh, initiative which Ukrainians had earlier this year is no longer with Ukraine, it's with Russia. Russia is uh, on the offensive. It is throwing uh, into the meat grinder uh, thousands of uh, poorly trained recruits every day. They are pressing very hard uh, on Avdiivka with very little to show for that. It will not, Putin will not be able to uh, brag later this week when we'll have the usual question and answer session with his country to brag about victory in Avdiivka. I don't think he's very concerned about that. Why then? Why uh, wasting all this kind of human uh, uh, resources? Russia is not able really to mobilize and recruit uh, uh, to compensate for the losses. Uh, numbers are going down, in fact. Uh, the autumn draft uh, isn't going very well at all. Russia is resorted to, to the, the dragooning and setting police cordons after, uh, around mosques after Friday prayers in order to get new records. It's really a situation with manning the army is really that bad. Why is then the need to uh, 
to, to press so hard. Ukrainians are well entrenched around Avdiivka in particular. The pressure is not that much on Ukraine as it is on us, on the global West. Global South is a figure of speech. Global West is a real thing. Uh, and uh, in Putin's perception, this is the center of gravity, and this is also the weak point. Uh, the uh, calculation is that uh, the uh, global West is becoming more divided, uh, more disconcerted, more tired of this war, and there is some truth to that. It's, much, it's very easy to, for uh, new Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk to say yesterday, I don't want to hear any more about tiredness. He's a politician. He's a generally very good politician. It's the right stance to take. For us as researchers, we need somehow to examine this phenomenon more seriously, and to look into that. And one of my worries in doing that is that by presenting it objectively, we are adding to that. We're adding to that tiredness. We are calling it into existence, which is not really what I, uh, what I want uh, to do at all. At the same time, there is a need to look very carefully at this uh, uh, cohesion of the Western coalition, not least because the other side of the uh, endless talk about how tired and divided the West is, is to talk about peace. And Putin is declaring readiness to talk about peace, not very loudly, but persistently, which essentially means he is ready to discuss the terms of Ukraine's surrender. But his discourse finds a lot of uh, takers in the West. There is a new flow of research and analysis about the prospects uh, for making a peace deal, finding a compromise starting with a ceasefire and progressing further to a more reliable uh, peace arrangement. Since the war is stalemated it anyhow, what's the point of continuing? And that's my kind of greater worry, that uh, the other side, so the flip side of the talk about peace, is the hope to return to business as usual. There will be kind of ceasefire, there will be kind of some sort of peace with Russia, and we collectively will be able to return to our... Uh, beloved agendas, to the Arctic cooperation, very needed. Without Russia, makes very little, uh, very little sense. I don't know. There are research priorities which are so distorted by this war because we need to concentrate on, on other matters. Let's try to see whether maybe Korean model can be applicable. You know, there is, uh, after all, a ceasefire line, the divided states, maybe it's applicable to Ukraine. And I will not try to argue against the point. The point with the Korean model means presence of U.S. troops on Korean soil, which is not going to happen in Ukraine. I will tell you another thing, that the phenomenon of Korean model means that on the other side, you have a rogue, very dangerous, very armed regime in the North Korea. Imagine this sort of regime in Russia with this peace what it would mean to our beloved agendas. It would essentially mean that we will need to focus all our resources, all our attention on countering this threat, as they do in South Korea. That we don't need 2% kind of, of GDP uh, on defense, which Norway is still not able uh, to gather. Uh, now probably 4 is needed in this situation we have, 
and it will double that if we have the Korean model. That would be kind of a shift of priorities if this uh, piece materializes. And it's, it is a long stretch of imagination. I don't believe for a second it's possible to make any stable peace agreement with Putin in power. But still, he counts very clearly on dividing the West, on the kind of tiredness in the West. His every strategy in this war failed. Strategy for the Blitzkrieg, strategy for maneuver warfare, strategy for holding on to, to Kherson. It is up to us to prove his strategy for winning the long war also failed. That's my last point. Thank you very much. So you've now heard both sides of this, uh, Professor Nathan. Would you like to give us some ideas about how a potential peace process could look? Yeah, thank you very much, Pina. Uh, thank you to Priya for the invitation to speak here. I have done a lot of research on war termination, and I'm going to offer a conceptual framework for understanding war termination in the context of Russia-Ukraine, but I'm not an expert on this particular war. I think the framework is applicable broadly to intra- and interstate war. And the framework captures complexity because there are so many variables that are relevant in war termination. It captures the dynamic nature of the bargaining space, and it is also regrettably not an optimistic perspective. Wars end, whether they are inter- or in- intrastate wars, they're going to end in one of two ways. There's a military outcome or there's a negotiated agreement. Wars can stretch out for a long time through a protracted stalemate, but they will end through either a negotiated agreement or a military outcome. And the military outcomes in the case of interstate war is either one party surrenders, is defeated, or an aggressor that has invaded another country's territory withdraws. We're interested here in conditions for negotiations, and there are essentially three conditions that I want to highlight. I will speak about each of them in turn. The first is a mutually hurting stalemate. The second is a scenario where the costs of continued fighting exceed the costs of the settlement, and I'll dwell on that. And the third is that the parties need to have confidence in negotiations. The mutually hurting stalemate has itself three conditions. The parties have to believe that they are not going to make further gains from fighting. If they believe they're going to make further gains from fighting, they are going to keep fighting, in all likelihood. This sense of um, stalemate has to be perceived by both sides, of course. So in a way, that's a second condition. It's not sufficient that one side perceives a stalemate. Both sides need to perceive a stalemate And the third condition, which is a tough one, is that the stalemate can't be comfortable. It has to be hurting. And we know that parties that are engaged in violent conflict are able to withstand an enormous amount of pain. So the hurting dimension is a very high bar. That's the first condition. The second condition is that the costs of continued fighting have to exceed the costs of a settlement. Um, If the costs of of continued fighting exceed the costs of a settlement, uh, then the parties are going to be resistant, of course, um, to to continued fighting. And there are subcomponents here that are very important. The first is that costs are not only political or economic or humanitarian. There are a range of costs that the parties are taking into account, and they include existential costs, 
they also include cumulative costs. So it's not just costs in the moment, it's the costs that have accumulated since the beginning of the war, which may make, in some circumstances, a party more resistant to negotiations and in other cases, make it less resistant to negotiations. So one can't make a strong prediction from that. Prediction is also difficult because the perception of costs is subjective. It doesn't matter what you and I think. It doesn't matter what the third party mediator thinks. What matters is how the parties themselves understand the costs. This is yet more difficult to predict because psychology and ideology affect the way in which costs are assessed. In other words, we're not playing chess, where it's as cognitive, rational uh, as possible. This is deeply emotional. And then further complicated by the fact that there are almost always internal debates within the parties on the question of whether to negotiate or not. That is sometimes very, very difficult to read in the moment, but it becomes clear with hindsight through research after the war has ended. Bear in mind that costs are always associated with a negotiated settlement. So from a humanitarian point of view, we may see the peace agreement as the obvious solution to the problem, humanitarian problem of warfare. But from the perspective of the parties, compromise is as costly as warfare in terms of its political, sometimes economic, but definitely psychological and existential dimensions. To complicate matters even further, each of the parties is making an assessment of these costs, not only for itself, but it's trying to make a judgment on how its enemy is assessing these costs. And it's trying to make a judgment not only on the costs now, but on the costs in the future. So for both sides in this war, the costs now are being extrapolated to the future for both that side making the assessment and its judgment of how its enemy is making uh, its judgment. All of this depends on the balance of power or is strongly influenced by the balance of power and by the party's predictions on the future balance of power. Where is this war likely to be in three months, six months, nine months? So you see how complicated this is. This is not chess in two dimensions. This is chess with passion in multi-dimensions where the borders of the game are not agreed by the parties, nor are the rules of the game agreed by the parties. We con can conclude from this that it's very hard to make a prediction about how this war or any war will end. We can conclude that it's dynamic, that the bargaining space which is affected by all these factors is shifting over time as the balance of power changes. And, and here's the pessimistic note, bringing us back to mutually hurting stalemate. The balance of power has to reflect this mutually hurting stalemate. Because if you imagine, just to, to try and demonstrate this um, visually, if one of the parties has the upper hand or thinks it will continue in the future to have the upper hand, the prospects for a negotiated settlement diminish. The party that has the weaker hand is more interested in a settlement. The party that has the upper hand is less interested in the settlement. 
And so one needs a kind of plateau where the parties do not see in the foreseeable future that either of them will gain a significant advantage and the costs interpreted broadly and, and, and variedly, the costs are becoming excessive. That is a rare moment. Those moments happen, this is how wars end, but this, these moments don't happen easily. My last uh, slide, and I'll be very quick here, the third condition, the parties need to have some confidence in negotiations. And that is very difficult when they've been killing each other and hate each other, and this is true of all wars. However despicable you may think a party is in a war, from the perspective of the parties, their enemy has always behaved in a despicable way. And so there's always a very low level of trust in both process and outcome. Trust in process can be mitigated if there is an impartial mediator that has the support of both sides. And um, as Tatiana said, guarantees for outcome are required usually by the weaker party, but often by both sides, and appropriate guarantees would depend on the circumstances. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, explaining this very complex situation and being able to lift our vision a little bit and see what's happening, really, in terms of more abstract negotiations. Um, I'm going to now have a open for some questions. And I think what was really interesting in your interventions as well uh, is that, in some senses, Ukraine's war is against Russia, but Russia's war is against the West. So it's not, uh, it's, it's almost two different wars. So how do you get a mutually hurting stalemate? Is there one? Uh, what would, what would that, how would that look in order for us to get to the conditions for negotiation? Uh, I can start maybe with Tatiana, if, if you see that as a question you could answer. Uh, well, uh, in terms of conditions for negotiations, that, that's a particular theory, and I would be uh, very interested myself to see how how um, this question is answered by um, by panelists. But uh, for for Ukraine, uh, these two dimensions, the bilateral dimension and international dimension, are, are both important. Yeah, and we can see efforts of Ukrainian government at at both dimensions. So you you need to gain uh, something at at both both dimensions. Yeah, and the the most I think difficult question for everyone who is trying to predict is to to understand the um, the level of the foreign uh, help to Ukraine and uh, the the willingness to to maintain uh, this help because a lot of things will will depend uh, upon the western help and Ukraine always recognizes it and we are really grateful for everyone who helps us really Pavel would you like to add you're right. The war has many asymmetries, which make the uh, talk about peace very complicated. And from the Ukrainian point of view, it's obvious they are fighting for their territorial integrity on their own land. From now, from the Russian perspective, you know, after the formal annexation, which is now into, uh, made into the constitution, Russia is also fi fighting on its own territory for uh, restoring its territorial integrity. 
and it's also fighting with the uh, collective West, asserting that kind of uh, the fight is about the existence of Russian civilization. You know, Gandhi is often quoted with a point about Western civilization. In his opinion, it would have been a good idea. Russian civilization is not a good idea. Uh, it has been very, uh, no foundation in any empirical data. Nevertheless, that's what kind of drives the war on the Russian side. I think that uh, it's only the sequence of uh, defeats on the battlefield which might, uh, uh, might convince the Russia that they, uh, there is a need to negotiate, that the collective West is strong enough, much stronger collectively than the, kind of the Russian civilization, that there is a need uh, in compromise. But that's very much a perception in Moscow, uh, looking for every crack in the Western unity, and in particular looking into the outcome of the U.S. presidential elections. Uh, because that, that brings me to another point that in, in, in what you were mentioning here, that uh, each side has to assess the costs of continued fighting versus the cost of settlement. But of course, the two sides have different information that they're receiving. And in the case of, of Putin, you know, yeah. this might not even this might even be misinformation because you're too scared to say what's happening. Yeah. How, how does that figure into into your uh, thing? So that's Are a you? real problem. And, and it's compounded by the fact that um, Parties believe their own propaganda. I mean, that's, that's a, a common mediator's observation that we may think when you're listening to the parties talking tough, that they're talking tough as a kind of public relations posture. Mm -hmm. But when you're actually confronted with the parties in, in behind closed doors, um, that is a reflection on their genuine position. You know, if I can come back to your earlier question, of though, um, this, this might sound odd, because when we look at how wars end, whether in this case or in other cases, often as analysts or observers, we are kind of preoccupied with the terms of the settlement. What might the agreement look like? And what kind of compromises or compromises might be acceptable to all the parties? That is not the mediator's perspective. Okay. The mediator's perspective is the toughest part is whether the parties are willing to negotiate. If they're not, then the question of the content is mute. Mute. The hardest part is to achieve the willingness, which has to do with the factors that I was highlighting. If the parties are willing, we are confident as mediators that we can design a good process and that the parties have a good chance of negotiating an agreement to their collective satisfaction. They decide on the terms of the settlement. And you raise the tension that there are different points of conflict here and different parties, this is not alarming to, from a mediator's point of view. We have lots of examples historically of parallel and sequential negotiations happening between different conflict parties around the same conflict. And exactly in what order and how it's put together will depend on the context, but it presupposes the parties are willing to negotiate. But I suppose you could also uh, open a negotiation in bad faith, uh, yes. thinking that, okay, we can now have a, a kind of ceasefire yes. in Ukraine and wait for the presidential election and see what happens then. And ceasefires are dangerous, and you have the danger of a spurious agreement, a spurious process and a spurious agreement. 
I would like to also return to the question that uh, uh, Tatiana, you brought up about support among the Ukrainian population, 85% support. Do we see that same support? Can we, do we even know in, in the Russian population what kind of support there is? Certainly one figure about Ukrainian support which impressed me, in fact, today when I saw again about the more recent uh, sociological data was about 50% of Ukrainians said we must continue fight even if the support from the West will stop. And that's courage. As far as kind of Russian opinion polls are concerned, certainly the data is hugely unreliable. Uh, sociologists are trying to sort out whatever kind of grain of truth is there. And very, very often when the, kind of, uh, the uh, opinion polls are posing an alternative question, do you think the war should stop or shall we continue fighting? A typical Russia answer is yes. <laughs> And so it is, but it, one thing is clear, there is no enthusiasm for this war. Mm. There is a lot of fear about new mobilization. There is greater and greater understanding that the war, uh, deadlocked as it is, brings only new uh, suffering, new casualties, new decline of uh, uh, living standards, cost of living, whatever. And uh, there is no, uh, no way out. So it is a very depressive atmosphere in Russia, and I don't think Putin can dispel that. Uh, uh, looking at the question of morale, which is linked to this, of course, uh, uh, Tetiana, could you say something about the, the EU process at the moment and how important that is? And also perhaps looking towards the future, any kind of a NATO uh, accession for, for Ukraine? Um, yeah, thank you. Well, uh, even even a month before the full-scale invasion, uh, prospects, real prospects of Ukraine-EU accession uh, would have been a fantasy. And the the, the full-scale invasion really changed changed the scenes and really also changed the the, the perceptions of Ukrainian in in terms of um, what. Is, is real because some things were considered absolutely unreal, uh, they're now real. Uh, the uh, European uh, aspirations of Ukraine uh, didn't really change with, with invasion. Ukraine was clearly heading uh, towards EU. What actually changed uh, both uh, in terms of EU and NATO accession uh, was the uh, the varnishing of regional differences because before the full-scale invasion, all opinion polls showed there is a regional difference in terms of uh, how East and West of Ukraine supported uh, 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 potential uh, um, EU membership or, or NATO membership. Now with a full-scale invasion, what actually Putin achieved is a complete unity of Ukrainian people in the East and in the West. Uh, towards this, and uh, the, the uh, EU accession has become a uh, real thing. Um, it's also, of course, uh, uh, understanding that uh, things do not happen overnight. The fact that uh, Ukraine uh, is about to, to, to start 
real negotiations do not mean we will be accepted uh, in EU uh, anytime soon. And people do do understand um, that it takes years, uh, sometimes decades. And this is all uh, acceptable to Ukraine uh, because this actually mean uh, for, for Ukrainian people a very, very strong pressure on the government to continue with democratic, uh, uh, with, uh, with democratic uh, way. Uh, because, of course, now with, with the war, there is, a, there is a huge dilemma for the government. For any type of government, it would be a very difficult dilemma. You have to militarize the country to be able to, to self-defend uh, ourselves. And this requires uh, a lot of centralization efforts. On the other hand, uh, we have to maintain uh, democracy in the country because without democracy, again, there is no peace. And without democracy, Ukraine will become a smaller Russia. And, and again, for Ukrainian people, this is absolutely clear. We have uh, the highest numbers uh, of support to democracy, uh, uh, which we ever had uh, during 30 years. Now, uh, more than 90% of Ukrainians think uh, democracy is the only, the only way. And uh, EU membership helps with, helps with this. NATO is also based on the same principle. Uh, same same democratic idea. So this will help it, whether we really achieve the goal. Um, that's another question. But the process itself is also very important. Uh, yeah. Uh, would you like to add to that, Paul? Just a word, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yes, there are kind of simultaneously two processes uh, about, uh, regarding Ukraine uh, about joining the EU, about joining NATO. And I think one important difference is that uh, Ukraine's accession to EU is impossible without a profound reform of the EU. Ukraine can join, join NATO without re reform of this organization, which is a much smaller bureaucracy, which is much smaller rule. So I think that uh, by next autumn, after the NATO summit in Washington in July, we will have a different perspective on EU joining, on Ukraine joining NATO, but I have very little faith in the EU ability to reform itself. Uh, maybe I am, uh, as a good Norwegian, uh, always critical about the EU. <laughs> because it is interesting that you, what you say, Tatiana, that this uh, this EU uh, session process has actually united Ukrainians' views on the EU and also has them wanting more democracy, whereas what's happened in Ukraine is actually splitting in many ways the EU. And we have, you know, Viktor Orban coming out and saying, no, this is absolutely not the case. So to what extent are, is this helpful for Russia to have these kinds of players within the EU uh, speaking their cause in a way? Yes, of course. Russia is always speaking on every uh, split. And it's one thing to have uh, Orban out. Uh, he is always you know, the troublemaker. Uh, and he is probably feeling that now it's his hour. Uh, he can get uh, harvest maximum possible dividend from his uh, uh, objections. But there are kind of greater uh, signs that the EU is not really prepared 
uh, for reforms needed, and I think the elections in the Netherlands uh, were kind of the, the, the strongest evidence of that. In the Netherlands, the opposition to every EU enlargement is very strong. They had a referendum, in fact, on the Ukrainian case back in 2016 and said no. Uh, so uh, I think that um, this line is not about just one or, uh, Orban. It is uh, very much about the kind of complexity of, of the whole institution. But I think on the EU, one task will ine inevitably fall. It is the reconstruction and rebuilding and rehabilitation of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It will not be a Marshall Plan designed in Washington, D.C. It needs to be designed in Brussels. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, so it, it looks as though we are beginning to, to sort of see the contours of a, a very difficult situation where it doesn't seem possible that the con it doesn't seem like the conditions uh, for having any kind of a diplomatic process are are in place. Could you do you see any anything on the table that looks like a a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, I don't. Um, I don't have the fine expertise of the military situation and balance of power, which I think mm. is critical. Clearly, the the economic situation, energy, gas. Um, all of these are important, but it's really the military trajectory, the likely course of the battle that I think is decisive here mm -hmm. and may well lead to a protracted stalemate, which is, I think, the, the current anticipation of the long war. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the military expertise to answer that uh, better than I have. Pavel, do you have any? Well, it, you know, for every military expert, this war is a sequence of surprises. From its very beginning, through its every phase, it's not going uh, as the consensus among the experts uh, expected. It is certain to bring more surprises. Uh, what sort of surprises we can expect? Uh, well, uh, in my opinion, for what it's worth, uh, it will be very hard winter for Russian troops in the trenches, uh, particularly in the uh, Zaporizhia region where logistics is, uh, is very bad. Uh, we might suddenly see a collapse of morale, a collapse of uh, command and control, uh, not because uh, the pressure from Ukraine is, is, is so very hard, but because of the general exhaustion and because what quality of uh, troops are there in the trenches. And a small uh, incident might suddenly trigger a chain reaction of that. That is a surprise I am uh, looking forward to. It ha can have a kind of a st strong resonance, mm -hmm. but again, no nothing can be t uh, can be taken for granted, and the calculations of kind of uh, hard capabilities are not really telling you very much. Uh, my hope is that the new capabilities available to Ukraine in both missile defense against Russian uh, uh, certain strikes long distance on its infrastructure and inability to deliver long-range uh, strikes might uh, impact on the uh, course of this stalemate, might break, might contribute to breaking this stalemate. But it is only, uh, it may be a wishful strategic thinking on my part. Mm. Tatiana, do you have any thoughts on something, what, what could break this stalemate? Well, uh, I uh, I can agree only with Pavel, and we, of course, will be waiting for the surprise. But what Ukrainians can do, 
there are two things which uh, which are really important. Uh, number one is to to advocate for continuous support because the the stalemate uh, the stalemate at the battlefield uh, would may mean uh, two opposite scenes. For some people, it may mean that yeah nothing nothing is going to happen so what's what's the point of fighting but for ukrainians it actually mean we have to get more weapons and more support to be able as pavel said to have um to have a, a military uh, breakthrough in whatever way but second important thing and uh, ukrainians are already doing so it's quite clear for us, uh, especially now, that unless Ukraine has internal uh, capabilities to produce uh, uh, weapons and ammunition and all of these, uh, including drones and including high technology weapons, uh, uh, military help from, from the West is, um, is not the only thing. Yeah, so what Ukrainian government is really investing uh, in uh, last last year is its own uh, production uh, capacities. And the, the thing is that it will take time. Such things do not happen overnight, but a lot of investment are already done, including civil society. You know, drones are now produced in uh, uh, we we see with civil society organizations, uh, there are a lot of helps from from volunteers in bringing in spare parts in in helping the production lines. So um, these these two things we really need now. We have just a few minutes before Christian concludes. So I'm going to end up by opening a subject I probably shouldn't open here. But given that so much of what happens next depends on Western support, could you say something about how Western constituents feel about supporting Ukraine when they compare to the support for Gaza? Because at some point, there is this is an issue that I think has an impact on support for Ukraine. If 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 Western governments are not holding the same standard in both conflicts, yeah. conflicts are very different, certainly, and uh, you know direct comparisons are uh, far misleading. But the in the question about how to rebuild Gaza and how to rebuild Ukraine, I think the key uh, parameter uh, is that the Western support for, uh, for rebuilding Gaza is very much a question about whether Hamas is exterminated. Because returning to the kind of the business, uh, the model as usual, when all the Western aid and the aid from Qatar and from any other sponsor is used by uh, Hamas to, uh, to, 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 to gain new ability for attacking Israel when every dollar of aid is in fact a step towards Hamas aid, uh, grand aim of uh, destroying the state of Israel, it is an impossible situation. Uh, so the, uh, in the question of aid to Ukraine, it is a very different story. It's, you're not really kind of choosing between Netanyahu here and Hamas leadership there which have one thing in common, they have no, uh, reg uh, no pity and no regard for the lives of children in Gaza. 
it is a very different situation with, with Ukraine. You know uh, what is the right thing to do. You know uh, what is the right course. And I think that matters. But US politics is problematic, as we know. And I, I make the observation anecdotally rather than based on research. In my experience as a mediator, it's, it's often the case that regardless of the objective balance of power, all sides believe the time is on their side. Now, that's not logical. It can't be on the side of all of them. But because they are convinced of the rightness, the righteousness of their cause and the demonic nature of their enemy, they believe the time is on their side and that they will prevail. Now, the external factors here that affect the balance of power in the war have very much to do with U.S. continued military support, obviously. And I think from Putin's perspective, since it's not inconceivable that Trump is re-elected, it may not be likely, but it's not inconceivable. He may well be seeing that and the current congressional uh, stalemate in the U.S. as affording him the luxury of time, that he can sit this thing out for another 12, 18 months because eventually the tide will turn in his favor. I don't think that the parties are looking at scholarly writing or op-ed pieces to make their predictions on the future. But when you see wavering of support at the highest political level, I think that's very problematic in this case. Tatiana, would you like to add anything if, if, uh, to that conversation, or shall we move on to the concluding remarks? Okay, all right, then uh, perhaps Christian can give some concluding remarks. Thank you, Pinar, and thank you, uh, Tatiana, Pavel, and uh, Laurie for a very informative uh, discussion. I think Pavel pinned it down by uh, raising the prospects that we are moving towards a uh, very high-intensity stalemate. Uh, and that, of course, is a uh, gloomy prospect, but it does appear as a very realistic one. You also, I think all of you, in different ways, underline the unpredictability of the situation. Which, of course, does mean that even though it may seem most likely that we are moving towards that very high-intensity stalemate, we need also to be prepared for things changing dramatically and uh, swiftly. And I think that brings me to the observation which uh, you started out on, uh, Pinar, that uh, it may be that what we are seeing now is a critical moment. I don't think it's a little early to say that, but we see a number of uh, factors falling into place. We see the uh, stalemated discussion in uh, U.S. Congress. We see uh, other conflicts appearing on the global agenda, not the least the war in Gaza and craving uh, attention. And we do see, uh, I would say, the decreasing support for at least some fissures in uh, the Western constituencies when it comes to support for conti continued support to, uh, to Ukraine. So whether that is, means that we are at the turning point or whether we will look back in six months from now and feel that we are still at, in a protracted period of uncertainty, of course, is unclear. But uh, we are certainly in such an uncertain moment. Thank you also for providing a very sober analysis of the situation, all uh, 
three of you. I think it's very interesting to succinctly like this have laid out the positions of the key actors. What are the core Ukrainian positions? What are the core Russian positions? And uh, to speak with uh, the terms that Laurie uses, what are the bargaining spaces that these two actors envisage? And I think what becomes very, very clear is that we're talking about bargaining spaces between which there is virtually no overlap. And that, of course, brings us back to Pavel's prospects of a very high-intensity stalemate. It is very difficult to see in this situation that there is any viable compromise. And that, of course, raises the question that also informed the whole seminar today, namely about whether there is any viable, possible end to the war in Ukraine that we can see implicitly a negotiated end. And at the moment, I think the answer to that is much more on the negative side than on the positive side. Now, that also raises the question as to whether one should at all discuss the prospects of a negotiated settlement. And to that, I do think the answer is yes. But I think the answer is a reserved yes. Because, of course, talking about a negotiated settlement also is something that contributes to shape the conflict. So whereas, and this is my perspective, none of you said this, but I have a sense that we are in a debate climate, also in our own part of the world and in Europe, where there is a juxtaposition between talking about talks and wholeheartedly supporting the Ukrainian fighting, I don't think that juxtaposition necessarily is healthy. I think the talk about talks need to be sober, need to be cognizant of the very dramatic situation we see on the ground, the high intensity, or the very high intensity stalemate, as Pavel phrased it. Nonetheless, I do also think that there are very serious dangers in not allowing a discourse about what a negotiated settlement could look like, nonetheless. So, um, talking about talks, preparing for talks, and perhaps even uh, at some stage when the time is ripe, engaging in talks cognizant of the risks may be important. But of course the parties, when they talk about talks, when they think about talks, and if they at a future time would engage in talks, also need to be cognizant of what their prime constituencies is, are. And their constituencies are clearly different. But my nightmare scenario is a situation in which uh, one overnight turned from seeing this confrontation purely in military terms, moves on to seeing it only in terms of a negotiated settlement, because that, I think, could bode very badly for the future of Ukraine and the Ukrainians. Thank you, all of you, for splendid contributions. I learned a lot from this seminar. Thank you, all of you, for turning up and for being such an attentive audience. I join Pinar in apologizing for not finding room for Q&A in today's session. We will return with uh, new events on... Uh, the situation in Ukraine, and we will return with new events on how it is that Russia engages in uh, peace processes writ large, which is the uh, core topic of the uh, 
project that uh, Pinar described at uh, the outset. And um, of course, there's no naivety in wanting to understand how it is that Russia approaches peace processes. It is, I would say, an existential knowledge need that we all should share. So again, thanks a lot. Look forward to see you back at Prio.